Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. In this episode, we are actually going to start a new series called Science and the Occult Through the Ages. Each episode, we're going to be focusing on a specific time period and discussing important interactions between science, the occult, and also influential people from both realms and the lingering effects they've had on our communities. But before we get into this, let's do our what happened on this day. It is currently July 19th, 2021, and on this day, Rosalind Sussman Yalo, an American biophysicist, shared the 1977 Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine, making her the second woman to win the Nobel Prize for the development of radioaminoassays, or RIAs, of peptide hormone. Radioaminoassays brought about a revolution in biological and medical research. With her co-workers, she applied RIA to study the physiology of the peptide hormones insulin, ACTH, growth hormone, and also to throw light upon the pathogenesis of disease caused by abnormal secretion of these hormones. This was pioneering work that opened diabetes research in many new directions. And because of this, she's actually been called the Madame Curie of the Bronx. All right, so let's go ahead and then dive into our first case study. And we decided to start with the classical period. But before we actually get into any of this, I think it's probably very prudent for us to define what we mean by the classical period. 500 to 353 BC is like the formal period where we're referring to when we say the classical period. So it's immediately following the archaic period and preceding the Hellenistic period. Um, the 323 BC is because Alexander the Great died on this date, and he had a massive, massive influence on Greek culture. He was particularly expansionist, and because he was so expansionist, um, he ended up colonizing vast swathes of the world. And of course, this intermingling of cultures had a huge influence on both science and the occult. Other influential things that happened during this time, colonization and wars with Persia, which again had a large influence on Greek culture. It's also important to note, and I think Fell can probably elaborate on this more, that different Greek city-states had quite different cultures during this time, and our records are largely from Athens for, for large periods of this. So when we're talking about Greece, just bear in mind we're not always talking about Greece as a whole. This period contrasts with the later Hellenistic period, which saw even more expansion and cultural mixing. We're specifically talking about classical Greece and not the Hellenistic period, because the Hellenistic period is so unique. <laughs> compared to this period and there's not as much fun stuff in my opinion in the archaic period or I should say our evidence for things in the archaic period are not as like strong a lot of our early science stuff was heavily influenced by the Attic philosophers and Attic refers to Attica Attica is the region that Athens is in Generally, when people say Attic or Attica, they're referring to Attica. I also wanted to bring up that, yes, we will be talking about the role that is played in science, but the idea of science in the kind of modern sense and the scientific method that we know today, that hadn't really been formalized yet. Um, but there were individuals who were concerned with documenting and studying the nature of our reality, and we'll talk about a lot of those today. But those individuals were often philosophers more so than they were formerly scientists. And another thing to mention about philosophers is that they were, one, elites a lot of the time, so that biases their perspective. 
Um, record keeping was also not always perfect. So we do have some records, but sometimes those records are secondhand accounts of what an individual said or taught. So that's, again, just something to bear in mind when we're recounting these, uh, these individuals' perspectives. We don't necessarily have a full picture of that. I also want to say that I specifically focused my research and like I wrote some headings and stuff in this. I specifically focused on like things that I could find in the intersection of philosophy, the occult and science, because there is a lot of like mathematics from this time period that like when I was looking into it, I was like, oh, this really doesn't have anything to do with the occult. So sometimes there was actually quite a bit of a separation, um, usually in like the mathematics sphere more than like the scientific sphere or like the natural sciences, because those were often tied with beliefs of life. So that was where we focused a lot of our energy. I think we also decided to, or I'll have to look, but I think we decided to skip astronomy and stuff because I feel like astronomy could be literally its whole other own thing. This is a a brief overview. So some of these things I think we're going to go, we've talked about before, or we'll talk about again in the future, but we could literally make a whole new podcast just talking about all of the things that happened in the classical period. Yeah, actually, we, in fact, in doing research for this episode, we came across quite a few individuals that we were just like, we don't have enough time to cover them in the depth that we want to. So we might actually do another series about influential people who are at kind of this intersection between science and the occult. Keep an eye out for that, too. But yeah, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the next part. So materialist philosophy is where we're going to start today. Um, Greek philosophers had a quite a preoccupation with the elements, and this was because they were trying to narrow down what formed the essence of everything. So this was the first principle or arc, which means beginning. Uh, so this started off with Thales. He was a mathematician and philosopher who posited that water formed the first principle of all life. And this might seem strangely prescient today, given that we know how essential water is for life, for reactions like hydrolysis, for the structure of proteins. And Thales came to this conclusion by looking at the actual properties of water. So its willingness to adopt particular shapes. So if you put it into a container, it spreads out into that shape. And the fact that it's so apparently able to change its state, so freezing into ice or condensing and and evaporating into steam, it seemed to show that it could take many different forms. And so he took this as evidence that water could condense to make different materials. Its ability to mix readily with other substances also added to this effect. Although Thales wasn't strictly correct about water being the essence of everything, his understanding of it as an essential solvent was actually remarkable for a writer of around 600 BC. And I guess I wanted to pass over to Astra as well on how prescient this potentially was and how important water is to our understanding of science today. Very interesting that Thales came up with this kind of theory just based upon the physical observations of freezing and then melting and the evaporation of water into steam because there is some evidence to suggest that water actually has memory and retains a memory structure of solutes that have been so diluted that they're no longer measurable in solution. And these studies were performed using a method called X-ray crystallography. And this actually showed alterations in the structure of water after being exposed to different solutes. It's actually been a while since I have read these papers, but from what I recall, they had they dissolved certain solutes into water. Some were actually dissolvable, some were hydrophobic in nature, and so they weren't actually dissolved, but they were at least in solution, so it formed a mixture. And then they left in for a period of time. They either heavily diluted things that had been that were water water soluble, or did like removed any particulates left over in the mixture. And then they were able to freeze the solution 
and they performed um, x-ray crystallography after then a I believe they then let it melt to see if the water would retain memory of that particular solute. I'll be sure to link it, link the studies down below if you're curious and you can read it for yourself. They were able to see, again, a difference between the water and its structure after exposure to different solutes. And there's actually a very fascinating discussion about this in a book called The Beginner's Guide to the Universe by Massimo Citro, which is a book that I continuously recommend quite highly. But anyways, within the occult community, and based on this hypothesis that water does have memory, it's actually thought that this could be a potential basis of medicinal tinctures and why heavily diluted solutions still retain their medicinal properties even after the solute has been removed. Now, granted, we cannot rule out the role of placebo effect likely involved in these reports, but I think it's fascinating all the same. I think it would be really cool to see some more dynamic structural studies like NMR to, to look at this, because obviously we know that structures um, in, in water particularly can change quite quickly. So that would be something um, that would be really cool to see as an update. It might also be interesting to engage some maybe newer technologies like cryo-EM, things that can allow us to view things on a more structural, like also 3D level to see if we can see any like macro differences when exposed to certain solutes. But yeah, that's a discussion for <laughs> another time, perhaps. So that was Thales, and he was kind of really the beginning of this materialist philosopher, uh, philosophy. And he uh, actually taught other philosophers. So these these ideas about the elements began to take root. Um, later philosophers who studied his teachings included Anaximenes. I've probably horribly mispronounced that. I really do apologize. But he held that air was actually the first principle. This is because it's of its invisible nature and apparent infinite presence. Um, its relation to breath was also quite striking for him. Um, he observed the process of condensation and posited that increased density would cause air to precipitate into matter. So stone would be a very condensed form of air in this, in this model. This isn't strictly true in a scientific sense, but it's, I still think that the observational power of philosophers was quite striking because they'd observe things precipitate and they had drawn this observation and tried to generalize it. The idea of breath and its identification with the soul will also come up later, but we'll talk about that um, in the in the future. Astra, did you want to mention the idea of density here? So the idea of increased density causing something with a lighter density to precipitate to something heavier is actually a concept that I've seen before when we're discussing energy in a spiritual sense and essentially how pure energy is truly nothing. But when it comes into contact with something with more you know, quote unquote, dense, like density, it then transform into matter. And this is my personal UPG here more than any like thing with scientific or really occult basis. But I personally believe that the spiritual energy that a lot of people experience and talk about within like witchcraft and the occult, is actually more of a liminal energy that exists between this pure energy that has no form and material, material energy or the energy as we define it scientifically. So we're kind of moving on from this idea of elemental monism and elements forming the whole basis of everything onto this idea of change and change dictating the nature of things. So Heraclitus, another philosopher, had this idea of change and opposing forces forming the first principle of everything in, in the universe rather than something material. And fire would be used to represent this motive character. Uh, it's subtle, it's, it's uh, mobile, it's able to penetrate and devour um, it can be seen as beneficent in terms of the sun. So this was perceived to be also related to one's communication with the divine. So water, for example, was perceived to be within humans, and the level of wetness or dryness of one's soul 
was uh, directly correspondent to one's ability to communicate with the divine. So that fire, that dryness would allow communication, which is really interesting, actually, because um, it, it sort of it expands our idea of the sort of elemental pantheon, if you like, and it also starts to take it into a more kind of spiritual idea. So the ideas about the innate elemental arc and eventually evolved into the ideas we understand today concerning the four classical elements. So most people are aware of these even outside of the occult. They are earth, air, water and fire. Rejecting the monism of previous philosophers, this theory proposed that all things become comprised of some combination of these elements. In particular, Aristotle expands on the nature of these elements via what he and some previous thinkers considered to be their essential qualities. So this would be fire being hot and dry, air hot and wet, water, cold and wet, and earth being cold and dry. Despite elemental theory having given way to the theory of states of matter in modern science, so solid, liquid, gas, and plasma, it's had a profound and lasting effect um, on occultism. So you could say elemental correspondences, for example, astrology, um, ceremonial altars. And I think, uh, Astra, you've mentioned that these come up in alchemy as well, right? So these ideas do come up in alchemy um, quite often, actually. And I recall learning about these mostly in my studies of alchemical herbalism, where when developing a tincture or a kind of solution to ease an ailment of some kind, you have to consider the ailment itself, what it is affecting. So the area of the body, um, some people have used the word humors to describe the kind of this process, although in alchemical herbalism, it's a little bit different. And so you you take the ailment and look at it from many different perspectives and then kind of try and determine what element it fits under considering the hot, cold, dry, wet characteristics. And then you create a solution that is the opposite to what the ailment is to bring everything back into balance. That's kind of the main idea is to return back to a balanced state. And again, a similar idea is applied in traditional alchemy as well. We see these separations of the elements in these descriptions uh, with hot versus cold and wet and dry quite often. So it's, it's a very common occurrence. Um, and I also ought to point out that elemental theory was not unique to ancient Greece. Actually, many cultures had their own elemental theories. For example, there's a five element theory in um, Chinese thought, or there are later classifications owing to the physical characteristics of things and um, which emerged in the Islamic Golden Age. But I'm just mentioning the four elements because they are so instrumental to our understanding of the occult today. So this elemental theory did not only form a major part of the occult, but also made strides in our understanding of the universe. Um, Aristotle asserted that the light elements, so fire and air, moved away from the centre of the universe, and that the heavier elements moved towards it. In this way, a spherical earth would be formed, and this contrasted with the thoughts of earlier philosophers like Thales, who believed in a flat earth. He also reconciled the circular movements of the wandering stars by the idea that they must be formed from a fifth material ether. So this was a pretty fascinating and quite quite ahead of his time, I guess, thought. But let's talk a little bit more about Aristotle and his views and his development on science. And just because I always get this confused, the like order of like the big three main philosophers that people always talk about. I mean, there's like a bunch of philosophers, but the main ones that people talk about, the main lineage is Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle. And I always used to forget and still do forget the order. So it goes Socrates taught Plato who taught Aristotle. So Aristotle's more recent, Socrates is later, just just so we have, just so you structure roughly in your head who we're talking about or when we're talking about. So Aristotle, a lot of people consider to be uh, an early scientist in in the way of, I mean, like we talked about, they didn't really conceptualize it like that. So scientia was knowledge of necessary causes that is essential to forming an understanding of nature. Aristotle did like kind of early forays into epistemology he was considered to be kind of one of the first empiricists 
meaning he very much went on like the senses, like things that you could see, touch, taste, hear, etc. Uh, he also worked to come up with classifications for animals. I believe it was around 500 uh, species, roughly. Empiricism is basically this idea that knowledge comes from primarily from sensory experience, which is kind of starkly different than I would say a lot of earlier philosophers who were kind of more mystically inclined. Aristotle actually had a lot of critiques of some of like the earlier philosophers as well. Um, they all kind of critiqued each other. So I, th I think in that way, Aristotle was more physically and motivated in, in that regard to sort of seek out the physical and then maybe how it connected to the divine there as opposed to the divine and then seeking the divine out in nature. That's kind of a distinction that makes sense. A lot of people look at Aristotle and see him kind of doing like a proto-scientific method. Like he didn't like really experiment, but he would go about in a certain way gathering data discovering patterns and inferring explanations from from these things as opposed to just theorizing about them he would go out and like seek examples and come up with hypotheses and then he wouldn't really like test them like we would know in the scientific method but he would go out and basically try to see if he was right I mean, yeah, I agree. Like, I do I do think that Aristotle definitely had, I don't want to say less scientific because observation is, like, one of the core tenets of science when it comes to developing a hypothesis. Um, but I think it just speaks to the almost intelligence that Aristotle and other classical philosophers had at the time, taking the observations that are very physical in nature and things you can actually visibly see, and then making relatively accurate actually hypotheses about how things work um, at the time that we've been, been able to verify experimentally in modern times with the technology that we've developed. Yeah, I just think it was, it definitely seems to me more of just like a ancient, it's not even ancient, but like older version of the scientific method um, that's like less relied upon things that we can't see and focusing more just on like observations that you would notice by walking outside. Right. And Aristotle differed from from Plato in that regard, where Aristotle mm -hmm. sought out things physically in the world, whereas Plato kind of started, it's so hard to describe this without using like a lot of philosoph philosophical jargon, but whereas Plato kind of started with the ideas, a good way that I've seen it phrased is Aristotle used induction from examples alongside deduction, whereas Plato just kind of relied on deduction and it's kind of but he already had a basis of like instead of seeking ideas out in the world he sought them kind of based on a preconceived theory yeah i think that i think it's a difference of like working within an established like pair like personal paradigm which is kind of what plato had versus aristotle who didn't put his observation didn't automatically put his observations into a specific framework instead he allowed the observations to kind of explain maybe their own thing often forgotten but very influential philosopher was Empedocles. So Empedocles is kind of in a, in this kind of chain of influence, if we're looking at this from chain of influence, he's like much earlier than a lot of these folks. Empedocles was actually around the same timeline of Pausanias, although Pausanias was younger than him. Empedocles was like an influence to Pythagoras and later Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and the Orphics and he influenced a lot of people, but no one really knows who he is. So Empedocles is down here. 
So he's the one that really kind of started the four elemental theory, although he didn't call them elements, he called them roots. So he posited these four roots, which we all know, air, earth, fire, water. And uh, this was all put in his sort of treatise on nature, which was all written in hexameter. He wrote his scientific theories in hexameter, which I think is hilarious. We need to do more of that because scientific papers are boring to read. It's, <laughs> it's about something we're really interested in. It makes it, it, it did make research a little bit difficult <laughs> trying to like parse through what he was actually saying. And what's interesting with uh, Empedocles is that these four roots were also identified with the gods. So there was Zeus, Hera, Nestus, and Idonius. Although I don't think Idonius and Nestus were gods. They were, oh no, just kidding. Nestus is, I guess, another name for Persephone. Didn't know that. Um, Idonius was like a hero though. Yeah, so he never used the term element. He just kind of used the term roots. And what's interesting about Empedocles is that he did not believe, he very much had like this idea that matter is neither created nor destroyed. Empedocles very much believed that as well, that sort of everything that is in existence is already in existence. The difference being um, if change occurs, that's how things appear to come into existence and appear to leave existence. Um, And these changes he called love and strife. These were sort of these mystical, but also in his mind, uh, physical ideas. They were eternal and unalterable. And these were very much divine powers. So love was when things unified. Uh, Love was the attractive force. So when forces were attracted together, they were attracted. It was the force of love. And when things were separated uh, or split apart, that was strife that drove them apart and Empedocles also very much was all about this idea of cycles he had this cosmic cycle you know we're once in in strife will then be brought together in love and things that were once in love will be driven apart by strife and it's kind of this death and rebirth cycle one of in fact he was one of the few just like Pythagoras one of the few philosophers who believed that animal eating animals was polluting to the body and blood was polluting again Empedocles could probably get his own thing because he he was extremely influential and kind of everyone who came after him was kind of standing on his shoulders so i guess we're going to move on to pythagoras and um i feel like again it's it's impossible to cover everything but um i wanted to bring up some of the principles which make pythagoras so important in the occult and i i'm actually i would like to do a tally of our episodes and which ones have the name pythagoras because i would i would bet it is like over half <laughs> at this point um, but if you don't already know who he is, he was a philosopher, a polymath, a mathematician. Um, he traveled very widely from Egypt, Phoenicia, even as far as India. And um, due to strife in his um, the original island he inhabited in Greece, he eventually moved to southern Italy in Croton, where he, he taught uh, philosophy. There's also some evidence of a mystic cult surrounding him and Pythagoreanism, but this is thought to be quite close to Orphism. The problem is, of course, that these are mystery cults, so we don't know too much. If you don't know about Orphism, it's a mystery cult um, largely concerned with the mysteries of Dionysus or Dionysus. So there's some kind of already interesting things there going on with um, communing with the divine. But talking about his influence on the modern occult, we come across this idea of opposing forces. This came um, originally from Heraclitus, a materialist philosopher, but as mentioned, was developed by um, Empedocles um, with this idea of the cosmic cycle. 
Um, and the idea of opposing forces forming the basis of all things. So this included um, the development of odd and even numbers, which of course was essential in the development of the sciences. Um, the idea of a definite and indefinite principle. But because there was this definite and indefinite principle um, splitting things um, down into two, there must be some kind of third guiding force overseeing these. So this was the principle of union, which was also conceptualized as God, um, and that uh, made its way very much into um, hermetic thought, um, neoplatonic thought. He had this idea that the world itself was God in process. And because of everything's uh, relation to number, every arithmetical or geometric theorem became, in this view, um, another window into the secret heart of things. Number became a kind of God, a revealer, and the philosophy of number, a kind of religion or mystery. So it was almost using arithmetic to decode the divine in some kind of abstract way. And we've already mentioned, um, Fell did a really good rundown in our Frequency and Vibrations episode, The Music of the Spheres. This was a um, sort of divine form of music. But Pythagoras also, at least in part, originated the idea of the soul. So this idea of the opposing forces, principles of change and flux would be applied to the soul versus the body. And you'd have this threefold division of pure thought, perception and desire. And of course, you can see how people divide things into um, material soul and spirit in kind of the modern occult world and they apply this to basis of how magic works so you can see that it's it's um very lasting even today i will say that and we'll do an episode on this at a later date i think but if people are curious about like arithmetic and like geometria and how it all kind of really relates to nature that is a fantastic topic topic to look into it is very math heavy so if you don't like math don't do it but it's a great way to see the connections between the divine and the influence of the divine in the natural world by just looking at nature around you and the patterns that you see and then boiling those patterns down to mathematical formulas which we can do and it has been done before so if you're curious like gematria is a great place to start i'll link a couple books in our episode description that like i found very interesting regarding this topic and you can look into it if it interests you. So we have a section here uh, which is titled The Humours, and then it says, or Humours, if you're not a stinky Brit. I don't know who wrote this. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's talk about the, the humours, and because they, they closely relate to what we've already talked about um, um, when we refer to the elements. But they actually play a massive, massive role, arguably too large a role, in the development of medicine. So this was the idea that the body comprised four things, uh, blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And these were probably from early healers observing bodily fluids in unwell patients. Um, the substances weren't thought to be inherently damaging to the body, but they ought to be in balance. For example, if somebody had a cough that was producing catarrh, there might be thought to be a surplus of phlegm or um, black bile, and excess of that was associated with cancers, for example. There was also an idea that certain environmental factors might cause a surplus or deficiency in one particular element. And it's not hard to see why observation might cause that. You know, some people with hay fever might have dripping noses, and that might uh, lead you to believe that there's some environmental factor influencing phlegm production. But this interesting thing here is that these were closely associated with the elements and their correspondences. So phlegm would be associated with cold disease, like water. And something I was surprised by was how long this idea persisted. Like, I was seeing things from 1910 still uh, using the idea of the humors. Like, we didn't get germ theory until kind of the early 1900s, I think. I should know this from a microbiologist. I'm sorry, but I haven't researched this. <laughs> but basically, yeah, we had the the idea of humans dictating illness very, very, very late on. Um, so it's been um, massively influential in um, modern medicine. Yeah, I remember reading that one of the things with the, the Spanish flu was the 
part of the things that helped was the discovery or the reassessing from the humors into germ theory that kind of helped them. And um, I think the Spanish flu kind of accelerated some of that because as you said, it lasted uncomfortably late. Um, oh, a friend of mine was reading Sense and Sensibility and we were talking about it and they were talking about treating, I think, Marianne Dashwood, spoiler alert, but you know, you've had several hundred years, so <laughs> not several hundred, a couple hundred. Marianne Dashwood gets like a fever and they're like, it was thought like like cured like in some some of the theories and so it was like give her cayenne pepper or something uh which is not not what's helpful i i couldn't find a lot of examples of humors in the classical age at least which is where we are limiting our evidence to uh, classical age being used for the occult i did i know in medieval age there were some examples of humors being used in, in the occult sphere but I couldn't quite find any connection between the humors and the occult in the classical age, at least not explicitly. I think now we can we we look back and view them more with a sense of occult and superstition because we know how kind of whack they are. Yeah, I also wonder this this is like a sidebar, and we can talk about this later. But I was thinking about some of these concepts like the humors, and I wonder how one could use them in a cult in an occult context because I feel like there could be something there with certain kinds of herbalism or um how related they are to alchemy i don't know i, th I was thinking about that i wonder if there's a way to 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 see them in a in an occult sense yeah i, I think there is i would have to go back and review <laughs> some of the early alchemical texts that i read um but there is a connection between them and we can maybe expand on it more when, if we do like an, al like an alchemy episode, which we probably will once we get into some later eras of like this particular series. And even if we get into just people who had huge influences on alchemy, like Pythagoras and even Plato to an extent. But yeah, you can use it. I'd be curious to know if anybody would use it in the occult, like in your practice today. I'm not really sure how you might do that besides maybe with like alchemy and herbalism. Um, but outside of that, like, I think my thing is that they're so outdated, <laughs> right? And they just, it's like, doesn't work. And knowing that I would hesitate to use any of that in my own practice. Like with the alchemical herbalism that I mentioned earlier, when it comes to kind of, you could, you could technically claim that it sounds like the, you use something similar to the humorous, like diagnose, I'm saying diagnose, not in like an actual medical way, because I would never do that. I'm not a doctor. But there's more to it than that. Typically, when you're doing alchemical herbalism in that regard, you look at more than just like this simple division of symptoms. And we really dive into like what is causing the symptom. And you get into the science, like a lot of the science behind it to actually inform what you're trying, what you're going to prescribe to treat. So it's definitely more scientifically vigorous, I think, than the original humor is used to be, although it might have been the basis for a lot of those treatments back in the day. In fact, it was not might have, it was. I will also add that Theophrastus, who came after Aristotle, I think he came after Aristotle. He was the first one to link the humors to personalities. Like, so someone with too much blood was a certain, a certain way sanguine, I think, which is, just means blood. <laughs> that would show sort of, so like someone who was uh, depressed might have too much black bile. He was the one who kind of linked a more 
Yeah, almost like early personality types in a, in a sense. Classical era Enneagrams over here. Yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> I wonder what I would have too much of. Probably too much blood. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty fiery. <laughs> you are fiery. We love you, hot takes. <laughs> I was I was looking up what what role the humors played and um, the environmental factors which would influence in theory the development of these humors and some of the the resources were saying things like oh all of these people in these cities in the west they're they're really prone to illness or they have too much black bile and that makes me think how much of this like you say the enneagram thing how much of this was actual kind of medical knowledge versus (laughs) people just being like rude or dismissive about people from other cultures or um in just uh, stereotyping other people. It's just, it was just sort of amusing to read that. That's just to say that literally no personality test ever has like legitimate basis and it's usually always biased in some right, way. I'm going to read these out, okay, because I think they're fun. The four temperaments. Oh and like I said, these first described by Theophrastus. I think in his book, Characters, which is a really fun, little short, sassy essay, he like really sasses people. It's hilarious. But it's also a very good example of like how they actually would have viewed things, like what was appropriate and what was inappropriate. Someone who is sanguine was highly talkative, enthusiastic, active, and social. Yep. Choleric tends to be extroverted, independent, decisive, goal-oriented, and ambitious. In Greek thought, this was also violent, vengeful, and short-tempered. Melancholic, I think we kind of know what that is today, but it was a little little bit different. It was like thoughtful, reserved, and anxious. So not just like depressed, but also like anxious. Phlegmatic, is that? Yeah, phlegmatic, phlegmatic, I don't know. Uh, relaxed, peaceful, quiet, and easygoing. But they also make too many compromises. So those I get the four the four early uh, personality types. I'm no longer going to ask people what their uh, enneagram or their Myers Briggs is. I'm going to ask them what their temperament is. Give me one of the four. What four temperament are you? Everyone in our Discord has to let us know what temperament they are. <laughs> I should add that as a role. <laughs> there you go. What temperament you are? We should. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's really interesting, though, if you like think about the what you just read out, and also if you look at the elements associated with each of the humors, they're very related to those planets and the attributes there as well. For instance, blood with actually the way in which it was described to kind of suggest, I don't know, maybe like I was thinking Mars at first, right? Kind of like what I was thinking initially. Mars, maybe a little bit of Venus in there. I'm assuming Yellow Bowel was the like super enthusiastic one. It was the second one that you read and it reminded me a lot of like sun attributes. Then the Black Bowel, which is associated with Earth, kind of felt more like like Taurus vibes, right? <laughs> which seems very like Jupiterian, a little bit of like Venusian as well. And then finally, the last one was Phlegm, which is associated with water and definitely gave me like the personality you described at least seemed very lunar based in my personal opinion. It was really interesting to also see maybe some planetary correspondences associated with the humors in addition to, and like the personality types that were developed alongside them. Okay, we're getting so off topic. <laughs> kind of related to the humors was Numa. Is that, that's how I, that's Numa. Numa mean, just means breath. I mean, think a word, uh, pneumonia. Numa was both considered physical and also metaphysical and this kind of relates back to god now i'm not gonna be able to pronounce this anaximenes maybe i'll go with that to the the thoughts on air as the first principle and then this would have 
Stoics that also embrace this idea of pneuma, very much like breath being sort of the central and the seat of the soul, in a sense. In a lot of ways, pneuma was like an air is essential to life and it's essential to and life is essential to, you know, thinking and everything. And so pneuma in a lot of senses was also very much associated with the heart and the mind, or at least our our concepts of the heart and the mind. The psychic, according to Diocles and Praxagoras, the psychic pneuma mediates between the heart regarded the seat of mind. Pneuma was definitely very a very important concept, both in the divine sphere and also in the medical sphere as well. I don't know if Henny, if you want to expand on that. It, it was it was a really long-standing concept, and it could be applied to everything. So it could be applied to both matter, but also to one's soul. And um, it's not necessarily clear where those boundaries are drawn. In Stoic cosmology, for example, there was this idea of logos versus matter. So the matter would be something that isn't destroyed, but the logos is the driving fire or divine fire. And that divine fire could be, it could be compared to the ideas we see later in Gnosticism, for example, of the sort of divine divine spark within oneself. So these kind of similar ideas of forces driving the soul. Um, but of course, because this was related to the breath of life, and there was there are previous ideas from Pythagoras with duality, we also have the connection of pneuma within the body um, to the kind of more spiritual divine spark and the kind of correspondence between those. Some believe pneuma to be transmitted in the manner of vibration, um, so similar to kind of music, and the more psychic idea of pneuma, um, this divine spark, it could have influenced later occult ideas of the macrocosm and the microcosm. Um, this is briefly mentioned in the Black Arts by Richard Cavendish. One thing I wanted to bring up was if there's this idea of pneuma which can be somewhat altered by our words or our, um, our actions, could this be kind of a, a mechanism by which the ancient Greeks believed that magic worked? Because we obviously know that magic was practiced in the classical period in ancient Greece. I would argue maybe not, because philosophers who were hypothesizing about this were not really the people who were doing folk magic. Like They were quite disparate groups of people. But um, I just wanted to know what your thoughts were on that. I do think, however, that even though, even though they might not have been practicing folk magic, it wouldn't surprise me if they might have been practicing some form of ceremonial magic. And when we're talking about ceremonial magic, the vibration of divine names is one way to connect with the divine. And in fact, it's a very good way to do so in my personal experience. And so that vibration of the name might have been something that was more commonly used amongst philosophers rather than your typical folk practice that includes, you know, foraging herbs and so on and so forth. So in that regard, actually, I don't, it might certainly be a mechanism by which they believed magic worked simply because at the time they also didn't have the same amount of tools that we had, right? And with philosophy being such a big part of the classical era, it makes sense that we would look at it from more like a, a theurgic perspective versus more of like the practical magic that we see in like witchcraft in modern times. So it certainly may have been a theory, maybe not the primary theory. I definitely think there was probably more to it at the time, but Again, that vibration of, of divine names was something that's very important in ceremonial magic, and it's something that I could see perhaps Greek philosophers maybe connecting with and engaging in. I don't know if there's any historical basis for that, so don't quote me. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to disagree. <laughs> so there, there is evidence to suggest that like they did view things like music as being divine, and um, they viewed philosophy itself and, and thinking um, and musing out loud about these things as at least being connected to the divine, at least Plato did. So I think 
in that way, perhaps Numa could be connected to some sort of mysticism. I won't really say magic, but I would say more mysticism. I don't think they would have made that connection. Maybe as individuals, if they knew if they knew like pneumatic theory, they might have made that connection. But I mean, we definitely don't see that at a, at a state level beyond the philosophers. I mean, if we think about the philosophers too, a lot of them were kind of branched as heretics uh, in a lot of ways, which people always like to forget. Definitely was, wouldn't have been a common thought, I don't think. And if there is, if they did think that way, there's no evidence that I can think of beyond just them thinking that like, music is divine or philosophy is divine i don't know if they would have thought like oh i can harness this numa and make it do something we don't really see that sort of thing come into play until the hellenistic period they could have been but from what i have seen uh i'm not super well versed in philosophers but from what i've seen it's it at least would not have been common Actually, that makes sense if you think about how important like arithmetic was at the time, right? If we're truly trying to find ways to explain the universe in terms of numbers, it makes sense that perhaps more artistic ideas of like harnessing one's breath to engage with the divine might not have been so commonplace given some of the tendencies towards empirical observation. I have a hunch, but I actually, I don't have evidence to back this up. But since you mentioned theurgy and Numa, I think it might have come more into play in the Neoplatonist philosophy, which was not until later in the Hellenistic era. Um, don't quote me on that. I would have to look it up, but I, I think that probably its introduction into ceremonial magic might have come from those influences, which were, again, later on, so not during the classical era. One of our last examples here is Hippocrates. And I wanted to bring up Hippocrates because I think he is kind of a juxtaposition against a lot of this. Hippocrates was very critical of a lot of intermingling of the divine and the natural world, just because... He saw it in a lot of ways being not necessarily abused, but that like people were relying on superstition to cure diseases. For those of you who don't know, Hippocrates was a very influential physician. And today, to this day, at least in the United States, doctors have to swear the Hippocratic Oath. One of the things that he said in his book on the sacred disease, uh, it is thus with regard to the disease called sacred. It appears to me to be no wise more divine nor more sacred than other diseases, but has natural causes from the originates like other affections. Men regard its nature and causes divine from ignorance and wonder. So he did not view disease as being divine, which is like starkly different from what we see uh, preceding him. A lot of people, a lot of physicians who came before him and a lot who came after him, like those who ran the temples of Asclepius or of Paean Apollo, they viewed disease as something that the gods afflicted you with and that the only way to cure it was to appease the gods. And they would go through the temple. And I think we've talked about incubation before, where they would go to the temple, fall asleep, you'd wake up and whatever dream you had would lead you to your cure. Hippocrates was kind of like, that's nonsense. That's silly. So he worked really, really hard to try to treat people based on natural evidence instead of the divine. Although he he did kind of pioneer a lot of like humor theory, humorism, but like granted, like, you know, it, it would to him that was the more scientific approach. Yeah, he tried to look at a natural cure and a natural cause as opposed to a divine one, which kind of got him in trouble in a lot of ways. He did, he did a lot of really good work. 
so one of this the quotes um a quote in latin about him is god no one who speaks latin come after me <laughs> it was like vis meditrix naturae the healing power of nature so he very much saw things that stem from nature can be healed through nature that's hippocrates who, who i in my opinion like i don't think he's like fully juxtaposed to the things that we talked about before but he's not really like of the the philosophy vein he's very much like this is physically what's happening and here's what I'm physically going to do about it. Which I think is important. Like that kind of grounding in physical reality is an important aspect. I think within the occult community that sometimes we forget. And like often we hear this phrase, right? Mundane or magical, which I think is overused to an extent and isn't necessarily entirely true because mundane things can be magical. I think Hippocrates kind of encapsulates this idea of like, systematically looking at your experiences or your problems and then saying like if this is a natural problem like it can probably be handled by like natural means we don't necessarily need to like come up with some like spiritual or like magical solution to everything right like if you need money <laughs> like find a job you can use magic to help influence it sure but like just doing a job still isn't going to do anything so if we want to like draw similarities kind of between Hippocrates and his philosophy and like modern times that could be a potential way to do it I love Hippocrates stuff <laughs> um he's one of my favorites but I definitely think that like as a community perhaps we should return and like really read the and like study the philosophy of many of the philosophers and the mathematicians and the scientists weren't actually scientists because science didn't really exist at the time. Their theories and their ideas, because a lot of them have very well-informed and like well-thought-out kind of ideas of how the world works. And there's it's still relatively spiritual because at the time, again, science wasn't this like fully-fledged paradigm like it is today. That's something that I definitely want to do moving forward is look into more ancient philosophers and just kind of read them without prejudice and get their perspectives. Yeah, I was just going to say that Hippocrates was the OG mundane over magical. <laughs> the one thing I will say about philosophers is I think I think they are very good at, at showing how things might have been, how science and the occult might have been, you know, mixed together in some regard. However, I will say that they're different than the common thought, like way different than the common thought to the point of, uh, you know, R.I.P. Socrates. <laughs> um, like, yeah, it, it got them all in a lot of trouble just because, like, they were forward thinkers. It's not me that this was like that. Uh, that ancient Greece was this place where science and and the occult danced wonderfully together because that's not necessarily the case. And it doesn't mean they were correct either. Let's just yeah. be forward with that as well. Oh yeah, oh yeah, they were so wrong. <laughs> they were wrong with confidence. As much as they're fun to study, they're they are very much indicative of their class and their gender and their place like athens um even though like pythagoras was not athenian his stuff was really proliferated by the athenians a lot of them wouldn't have considered what they were thinking of doing magic either i mean there's obviously these connections to the divine but that was often seen as kind of distinct from magic in ancient greece so that's something also to bear in mind like yes those influenced later concepts in the occult but they thought they were just kind of decoding sort of the nature of reality. So we can't kind of reverse engineer these principles and look at them through that lens. We have to recognize that they were trying to understand the nature of everything surrounding them with the um, observation powers that they had. Yeah, it's like Phil said, it's more really like mysticism 
um, right. than and even just like spirituality in general versus like actual magic in the terms that people think of today. Right. Like there were no casual Pythagoreans. <laughs> they were very much an ascetic cult. If you were a Pythagorean, like you were a Pythagorean. There, there's no way that they, it was necessarily intermingled in the everyday life. Um, although I would love to see how it was. I don't know if we'll ever know, unfortunately. But just know that this is just, like I said, this is a brief overview. Several books could be written about each individual. <laughs> like, Yeah, literally. if you are interested, like, please um, do your own research. We will include a couple of books below based on like our personal recommendations. Bella, I'm sure you have many. I have a couple that I read. And you can peruse those at your leisure. But we're going to go ahead and have that be the end of the episode thank you so much for listening um this was definitely outside of our normal scope of things but we hope you enjoyed kind of the general overview of the classical era and how science and the occult uh, mingled together a bit for a time and we will see you next week thanks for listening everybody and have a great day